if you've joined us today for the first time or just recently, uh, this is not a usual sermon or, or usual passage. Uh, it is usual because what we do as a church is we pick up book of the Bible and we read through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse, to hear what God speaks to us in it. Um, but it's not every week that we have the weighty and confronting words that we have here or for the last few weeks. Uh, Phil gave me two passages about sin out of the three. He only had one, so I don't know what he's saying about me in that. But, but in all seriousness, we should prepare our hearts uh, for these weighty words. So let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for your grace shown to us in the Lord Jesus. And we pray now that as we come to see the seriousness of sin, uh, that you would teach us by your spirit and be, let it help us to be convicted. We also thank you for our brother, Adriel. We pray that you would help him and his fiancée, Danny, to prepare well for their wedding and that they would glorify you and point people to you uh, by their wedding and by their marriage. We pray in Jesus' name for these things. Amen. I don't know if there's a person on earth, hopefully not in this room, uh, who doesn't love a good uh, courtroom drama on TV. Uh, am I right? You know, it's just, I just kind of love the suspense that they always build in those shows. And I kind of love like the interesting deception and craftiness that they all try to do to, to work out how to beat the other side. I also just love how far-fetched those crime and uh, those courtroom dramas are. Uh, I don't know if you've ever sat in a real courtroom in a real trial, but it's much, much more mundane than it is in the TV shows. Uh, they're actually kind of dull. Maybe you've experienced that before. Uh, but what we've been reading through in Romans so far has been like a courtroom drama. It's been a good one. It's been a really uh, impacting one. Paul, what has he been doing? He's been prosecuting and questioning humanity. He's been showing forth the evidence against humanity, the case against them. What has humanity done? Why are we guilty? And why does, why does humanity deserve God's judgment? It's been weighty, but... That's what we're going to be thinking about today as well again. But now, before we get into our passage, let's think back to the last few weeks. What have we seen? We've seen the state of humanity without the gospel, apart from Jesus. We've seen the bad news of the situation that, God, that humanity is in. So two weeks ago, we saw the story of humanity. Humanity as a whole, what have they done? Apart from God, well, well they've made images and worshipped them instead of worshipping the glorious God of all. They've exchanged the truth of God for idols, worshipped created things instead of the Creator. And so they, the Gentiles, Paul says mostly the Gentiles he's referring to in that first chapter, they are without excuse, he says. In God's courtroom, they are found guilty. They're deserving of his wrath. God's wrath is revealed against them. But if you then remember last week, we saw Paul correct some of those listeners who might misunderstand him. And Paul spoke to those who might say, yeah, I like what you say in chapter 1, Paul. You tell those Gentiles that they're filthy sinners. But, Paul says, to you, to you who have God's law, to those who had God's word in that day, the Jews, who do you, to you, do you stand in judgment over others? Have you kept the law always and in every way? Do you not do the very same things that you condemn in others? You do, was Paul's accusation. 
Don't think that you receive special treatment as Israel, as God's nation. God is totally fair. He will weigh up each one's works and judge according to them. There is no favoritism with God. Only those who actually do God's law are righteous, not just those who hear it or hold it in their hands. And so they, the Jews, that's who is mainly speaking to in chapter 2, they are also without excuse, Paul says. In the courtroom of God, they too are found guilty. They are deserving of God's wrath. God's wrath will be revealed against them on the last day. I'm sorry, but also not sorry to say, that Paul has more of the same to show us today. He shows us more of the bad news and just how bad the bad news is before he then gets to the good news, which we'll get to next week. And how good that news is. And how good will that news be once we have walked, or rather trudged, through these early chapters of Romans, chapters on sin and God's wrath. Well, today Paul continues this kind of courtroom-style prosecution before he gets to, to, to the end, to his closing arguments and this final verdict, though. Before that, he raises five objections. That's the first part of the passage that we see today. If you look at your outline, you'll see that's where we're going. Uh, and everyone loves the objections in the courtroom drama, don't they? Uh, here Paul deals with five objections, objections to what he's just been saying in chapter 2. And these are real objections that Paul would have heard as he travelled around and preached the gospel to Jews. And he goes on to answer each of these questions later in detail, more detail later in Romans. But for now, he just kind of gives us the quick answer and moves on. So you can imagine it as that courtroom, or you can imagine it like this, uh, you know, when you're in a seminar or you're in a lecture uh, and the presenter, they're, they're speaking and then they stop and say, oh, look, does anyone have any questions about that? They hear questions, they give answers. It's kind of like that, but imagine the person up the front uh, says, actually, I know your questions and I think they're silly questions and I'm going to answer them and then I'm just going to move on. Kind of what Paul does here. Quick fire questions. So come with me. We'll move through each one. He has important things to teach us as people raise these objections, these theological objections to Paul's gospel. So objection number one, what advantage does the Jew have? See, Paul, he's been saying that the Jews will be judged according to their works, just as Gentiles will be. And so you can imagine a Jew sitting there and thinking, hang on a second, what benefit is there of being a Jew? What good is it to be one of God's chosen people, part of his chosen nation, to have his law if there is no advantage in the end? Look at verse 1. Here's how he says it. So what advantage does the Jew have, or what is the benefit of circumcision, of following the Jewish law? Now, in one sense, he's already answered this, hasn't he? In the final judgment, there is no favoritism. All are judged fairly. All are judged according to their works. Don't think that you have an advantage just because you're a Jew and part of God's nation. But what's Paul's answer here? Look at verse 2. What's the benefit? Considerable in every way. He says there is an advantage to being a Jew. How? Well, again, he doesn't go into all the detail here. He does that later on in chapter 9. All he says here, look there, is to, look, is to talk about his, their privilege. He says, first, they, the Jews, were entrusted with the spoken words of God. What a privilege to have God's law, to, to have and to hold and to hear the very spoken words 
of the God who made everything, the one who sustains all things. If that's not an advantage, then what is? It's a silly question, Paul says. You have the most valuable thing in your hands that no other nation has. You hear it every week, the words of God. And so Paul says, no, objection one is overruled. And so he moves quickly on to objection two, has God's faithfulness been cancelled? And if So here he's raising the idea that, that if the Jews have God's word, but, look at verse 3, what if some of them didn't believe in God and didn't believe in his word, will their unbelief cancel God's faithfulness? What is he getting at? He's asking, if Israel is unfaithful and turns away from God and God judges them, well, how can God keep his promises to bless them? Won't they, by their sin, cause God to have to be unfaithful because he can't bless them anymore? He can't keep his promises. Now, what's behind this question? What's really behind it? Well, this person is saying that they don't like that God will judge them. It's not good for God to judge his people. We do have favoritism with God. We do have an excuse. God loves us. We're his special people. Of course, he will show us favor. But what's Paul's answer? Look at verse 4. Is God's faithfulness cancelled? Absolutely not. God must be true even if everyone is a liar. So even if every person ever was a liar all the time, God would still and could still be faithful and true. And then Paul quotes from Psalm 51, and the point is, God is justified, God is righteous and faithful, even when he judges his people, even when he punishes Israel, because he's only doing what he's already said he would do in his word. See, God promises wonderful things to those who turn to him, and he promises awful things to those who turn against him. Number two, has God's, word been, has God's faithfulness been cancelled? No way. Silly question, Paul says. God is faithful even if no one else is. And he's still being faithful even when he judges. It's overruled for Paul. And so he moves on quickly to objection number three. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? This one's a bit more philosophical, so we have to think about it. Look at the question in verse five. This person says, but, but if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? I use a human argument. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? This person says, okay, Paul, I think I get you. We're going, we're, we are so sinful and God is so righteous. But if our sin is so sinful that, that it makes God's righteousness look even greater, well, that's good, isn't it? Shouldn't God be happy about that? How can he punish us if in the end what we're doing is making him look better? God should be happy with the net result of looking good. So it's not right that he's angry with us. We just make him look better. But Paul, he, he thinks this is just such a silly question that he can't help himself. Did you see it there? He slipped in that phrase, I use a human argument, this is silly human reasoning, according to Paul. And so he says, look at the answer, verse 6, same answer as before, absolutely not. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? 
See, God has to judge the world in order to be righteous. And it is a given that he will judge the world. How else could it be? God would only be unrighteous to not judge the world. And it's sin. It's a silly question, Paul says. Just think about it. To live in a world where sin is not accounted for, where it will not be judged, is a horrific thought, isn't it? I do not understand how so many people live in our world with that thought. How is there any happiness and joy in the world if this world is all that there is and injustice wins all the time and there is no final judgment, there is no making things right? It makes no sense to me. But God is righteous to judge. He's righteous to inflict wrath, even though our sin might show his righteousness to be better. That's number three, overruled. He moves on quickly to number four. Objection number four, it's actually almost the same as number three. Keep up with me. Uh, why am I judged if God is glorified? This is, the question. this is the question. So look at verse seven. He says, but if by my lie God's truth is amplified to his glory, if, if God is shown to be more glorious by my sin, then why am I still judged? As a sinner. The last one was more about God. Isn't God unrighteous? Well, this question is more about us. Why should I be judged? And again, this is, this is the self-righteous person, perhaps the self-righteous Jew, trying to excuse themselves from God's judgment. God should be happy with the net result of being glorified, so he should let us off. Paul's answer to this is just scathing. He answers his question with another question, and he actually doesn't even really answer it. Look at verse 8. This is how silly he thinks this is. He says, And why not say, just as some people slanderously claim we say, let us do what is evil so that good may come. Their condemnation, those who say that, is deserved. Pretty strong, isn't it? What's he saying? He's saying that, yes, God may be shown to be more glorious, but in contrast to our sin, and as Paul went around teaching about sin and about the gospel, they heard him saying that kind of thing. They, they heard his fellow preachers explaining that. And they said, are you saying, let's do evil so that good may result? That they accused Paul of saying that. Sin all the more. The ends justifies the means. Paul says, no. That's absolutely ridiculous. We never said that. It's pure slander. And so Paul goes on and later on in chapter 6 to talk about this, about our sin and God's glory. But he's always clear that we should flee from sin. And God's word on sin, God's word on judgment, and God's word on the gospel teaches us to flee from sin, never to embrace it. So number four, why am I judged if God is glorified? Silly question, Paul says. He just doesn't even answer it. Overruled. That leads us to his final objection. So number five, and this brings us back to his main point and into the rest of the chapter. Paul asks, are we Jews any better? Look at verse nine. This is where he's heading. He says, what then? Are we any better? Are we Jews with God's law better, any better than the idol-worshipping Gentiles out there? Paul's answer is devastating here. Not at all. 
And here's the clincher and where his whole argument has been going for three chapters. Read it there. For we have previously charged that both Jew and Gentiles are all under sin. All people are under sin. Jew and Gentile, there's no third category, so that's everyone. All people are under the power of sin and the guilt that it brings. There's no excuse. These five excuses that he's just raised, they're not excuses. They're silly. They're they're flawed logic. They're false. Jews and Gentiles alike are under sin. No one can wiggle their way out. All the objections are overruled. And so that leads Paul into his closing arguments. Closing arguments in the court. And it's kind of like the climax to all of these three chapters. It's actually just a horrible, horrible anti-climax as Paul brings these truths home even more. You see, how does Paul prove his point in the end? What's his final way of showing that all people are sinful? But there's no excuse before God. He pulls out God's law and says, look at what it says. And he just pulls together, he lists out a barrage of Old Testament verses that condemn all people. This is not fun, but but let's just look at it again. Look at these verses, verses 10 to 18. I'm going to read verse 10. This is Paul. Uh, This is where he's been leading us for the last few chapters. Verse 10. As it is written in the law, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become useless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So Paul says, in light of what I've said, and in light of these verses, no one can stand before God. No one has met his standard. In fact, everyone has turned away from him and done that with zeal. And so Paul goes on in verse 13. He says, he talks about our words, and he says, our words are evil. Humans speak in hideous ways. We speak words of death and deceit and poison and bitterness. Walk down the street or drive anywhere in Sydney and you will hear it. As I wrote this sermon, I heard people on the street shouting abuse to each other. And then in verse 15, he talks about our feet and our walking. He says, our feet run towards harming others. We walk on paths of wretchedness and ruin. Humans don't walk on the path of peace. Peace is not a word to describe humanity. If you look at the news, or if you walk into any household or any family, you will see it's true. Paul is not saying here that people can't show any love or do anything that's good. We're made in the image of God, aren't we? But he is saying that the situation is worse than we could imagine. That our sin is more awful, more ugly, more distorted, more depraved than we think it is. He's saying that none of us has treated God with the honor and love and obedience and thanks and reverence that he is due. He's saying our natural attitudes on our, by ourselves, of our own account, are actually the opposite. Apart from Christ, apart from the Holy Spirit working in us, our hearts, humanity's hearts, against God. 
the verse 18, he caps it off like this. There is no fear of God before their eyes. They avert their eyes from God so they don't have to be afraid of him and they just live how they want to. So Paul then reaches this final verdict. And this is the point, again, of what all these three chapters of Romans have been working towards. So we need to do a little bit more work, though, so stay with me. Look at verse 19. It says, Now we know that whatever the law says speaks to those who are subject to the law. So he says, it says, these verses that I've just listed out for you are from God's law, the Old Testament, and they speak to those subject to the law. It speaks to the Jewish people. You Jews who think you are okay with God, actually, these words are from your law, and they condemn you. Reading on in that same verse, the law speaks to those who are under the law, the Jews. Why? So that, he says, so that every mouth, may be shut, and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. His point is this. He says, he says, I've shown you that the Gentile world, those without God's law, that they are under God's wrath for their sin and their idolatry. And now I've shown you, he says, that the Jewish world too, those with God's law, they are under sin as well. And so that means that every mouth is shut before God. There is no excuse for Gentile or for Jew. Because of their sin, the whole world, he says, comes under the judgment, comes under God's righteous judgment. See, it's not even the Jews who had the very spoken words of God in their Old Testament. Not even they can be right with God by their actions. Well, then no one can. No one has and no one ever will. And that's actually his point in verse 20, which is our last verse. Before we get to that, though, I want to show us something. Remember back to last week. I'm going to show it to you on the screen. So you remember last week, Paul said in chapter 2, he was talking about the final judgment and God's way of judging the world. He said, for the hearers of the law are not righteous before God. The doers of the law will be declared righteous. So there he seems to say... Can you be righteous? Can you do the law and be righteous? Well, look at what he really thinks and what he really means in chapter 3, verse 20, our last verse. For no one, no one will be justified righteous in his sight by the works of the law. No one truly is a doer of the law, Paul says. In fact, he says, the knowledge of sin comes through the law. And again, we will press more into this later on in Romans 7. We don't have time to now. For now, he just states that truth. He just shows that truth, that God's law doesn't make people righteous. No, in fact, it just shows them how sinful they really are. It exposes them. God's law shuts every mouth before God the judge. We can't make any excuse. We can't justify ourselves. We can't do what the law demands. Even the Jews couldn't live it out. And so the verdict is only guilty. That's what Paul's been trying to show us. That's what he's been working towards, showing us what humanity is like, showing us the state of ourselves, showing us our destiny apart from the gospel of Jesus. 
And it's weighty, isn't it? It's so weighty. And the weight of it piles up from the last few weeks and weighs on us. But all of it is here for a purpose. If you feel the weight of it, that's actually right to some degree. There's probably something wrong if you don't feel the weight of these chapters. If you have no guilt or no shame or no sorrow at these words. That suggests that you haven't understood what he said. Go back and read it again. Or it suggests, worse still, that your heart is hard towards the word of God. We should feel the weight of it. Again, and not because we we love feeling mopey. And not because we want to make people feel bad, but because Paul is trying to show us exactly why we need the gospel of Jesus. Because do you remember how Paul started off earlier in his letter? This is on the screen. He said in chapter 1, in God's gospel, in God's gospel, the gift of God's righteousness is revealed. It is given to those who believe. Why? Why is that necessary? It's because of what we've seen tonight. And it's because of what we've seen in Romans 1 and Romans 2 and Romans 3. We need God's righteousness as a gift because God's wrath is on all the sin of humanity. No one has an excuse. There's no one righteous in and of ourselves, not even one. But in the gospel, this is what Paul has been saying. This is what he will say. In the gospel, we receive the gift of God's righteousness that we don't deserve. We need the gospel in order to be righteous. We can't be without it. See, if the gospel, if Christianity is just about saying to humanity, oh, let's, let's go from being okay to being a little bit better, well, we can ignore the gospel and pursue something more interesting, something more revolutionary with our time. But if we really need Jesus, if we need the gift of God's righteousness, if we're ruined without Jesus, if we are desperate and destitute and depraved, if we are under God's wrath, if his judgment is coming and all the fearsome things that that involves, well, then the gospel of Jesus becomes the one thing in the world that we need more than anything. Isn't that right? And if we know all of that, and actually, do you know that? That's what Paul is working hard to convince us of. Do you know that we're in a boat that is sinking fast? God's wrath is against our sin as humanity. And if you know that, and I pray you do, well then we know just how much we need the good news of Jesus. And that's where Paul takes us next week in Romans 3, starting from verse 21. I'm tempted to just dive in there right now and read it with you, but I don't want to steal the thunder of those verses now. You can go and read it yourself. I'm not going to stop you from reading your Bible. That's the wrong thing for a pastor to do. You can read that. You can explore those verses yourself. But we'll come to them next Sunday, and it will be wonderful. But instead, today, we'll be sharing in the Lord's Supper. And as we share the bread and as we drink the cup, well, I hope that today it bears all the more significance for you. Because in Romans today, we've learned why Jesus' body had to be broken and hung up on a cross. It was our sin, and it was our rejection of God. 
And we have learned why his blood had to be shed. It was to bear the wrath of God that was against us. And so, as we come to share the Lord's Supper, we are reminded. We are reminded of the great cost that Jesus went to for us. Because this, here in Romans 3, is our situation without him. So as we heed the words of Romans 3, and as we share the Lord's Supper, what do we do? We don't make excuses for ourselves. We don't raise objections to God. And we humble ourselves before God because Romans 3 has humiliated us and shown us we have no sense of pride that we should hold on to, not before God. But as we humble ourselves like this, as we know the depths of our need and our situation, it makes us all the more thankful. Because we remember that Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed, and we know that He did it for us, for sinners that Paul has shown us we are tonight. Sinners who can be made righteous in God's sight only by the death of Jesus. More on that next week, but the Lord's Supper tonight. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, thank you for the piercing words of the Apostle Paul that your spirit caused him to speak and write and preach among the nations. Father, help us to know our deep need for the gospel. Help us to know the depths of our sin so that we may rejoice all the more in the gift of righteousness given to us because of Jesus. Make us all the more thankful, we pray, and humble us. In Jesus' name, amen.